March 13th, 2022. Something happened in the NBA that had never happened before and likely, hopefully, will never happen again. Oklahoma City was playing Memphis. They spent, if you've ever seen basketball games, they spent like an hour and a half doing warm-ups, wearing different varieties of jerseys or street clothes, and they were out there doing their final warm-ups. They were all wearing their warm-up uniforms. They pulled their jerseys or their uniforms off to show their jerseys, and both teams were wearing white. They had to pause the game until one of the teams could find a dark jersey to wear. Because you can't play a game like that with both teams wearing the same color. The reason it never happened before in the NBA is they had a rule. The home team always wore white. The other team wore a dark color. Then they decided, wait, we want to let the home team wear whatever jersey they want so the other team has to wear a different jersey. And apparently they didn't communicate well. And they were both wearing white. What's the problem? Well, the problem is you don't know who's on your team and who's not unless you're looking directly, specifically at them. You want your team to look completely different from the other team. You don't even want your team wearing yellow and the other team wearing white that's too similar. You want to stand in total contrast to the other team. That's what this passage is about. Paul continues this theme through Ephesians about us looking different than the world. The world looks like this, so we look like that. The world does this, so we do that. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read verses 1 to 21. The next two weeks, this week and next, we'll be looking at this passage. Today, we're going to look at the first two-thirds or so of it. Next week, we'll finish it out. But here's what it says. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, 
but is wise, making the best use of your time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's a lot. So let's start back at the beginning and just start the process of walking through the passage to understand what Paul is saying. And he says, therefore, that is a word that is used a lot of times in this letter. Why? He starts chapter five with therefore. He, in chapter four, verse 25, he says, therefore. In chapter four, verse one, he says, Therefore. Why all of these therefores? Chapters one, two, and three are about our identity in Christ. And when we understand our identity, we can then therefore act in a certain way. See, it's written on, in this order on purpose. Paul doesn't say, hey, here's a lot of things that you can do, therefore you can have your identity in Christ. He says, here is your identity. If your faith is in Jesus, your identity is this. Therefore, look this way. Look what way? Look like Jesus. Therefore, and that's not just me guessing at this, therefore, be imitators of God. So what is the command? To imitate him. Be imitators of God. As beloved children, it's interesting. You and I, as children of God, are supposed to imitate him in the same way our children would have imitated us. My kids say things the way that I say them. They do things the way that I do them. Josiah drinks his coffee the way that I drink my coffee, which is the only right way to drink coffee. Very little syrup, very little anything, just coffee. The fastest way to get caffeine in the body. No, it's not quite. But he does things like I do them. Why? Because he simply wants to look like me. Not always anymore. He's getting too old for this nonsense, right? But he copied me for most of the years of his life, not even knowing it. You see that in people. Their kids do things the way that they do them. Sometimes that's great. Sometimes it's not so great, right? Your kids see how you do things. They copy you. They imitate you. They let other people see what you would rather them not see. So if you don't have kids yet and you want to do really well as a parent, here's the key. Do it the same at home that you do when you're in public. That way your kids don't do in public what you only do at home. Because they will. People say things in a softer way when they're around pastors. And in a less soft way when they're not. And then their kids, whether they're around the pastor or not, they will say whatever you say at home, right? That's how it works. They imitate you. They say it the way you say it. They do it the way you do it. This is, so, this is good. 
It can be bad because it shows our brokenness, but the imitating is good. That's what we are to do with Christ. We're to imitate God because we're his children, not because we imitate him, we are his children. Not we do things so that our identity can be in Christ, but rather our identity is, our identity is in Christ, therefore we do things. It's the same words, but the intent and the purpose is totally flipped around. As beloved children, be imitators of God and walk in love. It's a command. It is a present tense, active imperative. Walk. What are you supposed to do? It is a command by your superior officer to do something. Walk this way. It's not a suggestion. It's not an implication. It's not a request. It's a demand that we do that. And it's active, meaning we're actually doing it. And it's present tense, which means it is happening now. But now is already past. So now it happens now. And now that's past. So it happens now. When does it stop? You can stop walking in this way, when you stop walking, meaning you've died. When you've died, you no longer have to do this because you either continue it in heaven or if your faith isn't in Christ, you don't have any opportunity to show love. Now, theology of hell is totally different, but here's the, the key to hell. Everything that is God is not in hell. God is light, love, caring, gracious, None of that can be found in hell. God is communal and full of relationships, can't be found in hell. So we're not going to get too much into it, but that's what it is. So you either have an opportunity to continue walking in love with God because you're with him and your sin, is, sin component is removed and you'll continue in that or you won't. Walk in love as a command that keeps going as Christ loved us. See, here's the thing. The world loves this command. There's two commands in the Bible that the culture loves. One is this one, walk in love, man. The other is Matthew 7, 1, judge not. Did you know that is actually the most quoted verse in the Bible? John 3, 16 was for years and years and years the most quoted verse in the Bible. Now it's Matthew 7, 1. Judge not lest you too be judged. Now that disregards all the rest of the context that is about judging people because you're judging their actions, not their motives, but it's there. The culture loves it. Now we come to this one. It says walk in love. It loves this idea. The culture lauds this idea. And if you're not familiar with the word laud, it's where we get applaud. You clap for something. You are happy about it. You praise it. The culture loves the idea of love. But what they mean by love is that you get whatever you want. Do you know what I want? Ribeyes and cheesecake every night for dinner. You think I'm joking. I am not. I would enjoy it for an entire month until I died of cardiac arrest. Then I would be in heaven with Jesus, but I would love it. And Allison doesn't give it to me because she doesn't love me, right? <sighs> no, right? She doesn't give me the things that I want that aren't good for me, 
all the time. Cheesecake is not always bad. Actually, cheesecake is always good. You just shouldn't always have it. Anyway, that's a different thing. (laughs) But she doesn't give it to me because she loves me, not because she doesn't love me. But our culture says, if somebody... If you love somebody, you're going to give them whatever they want because love is soft and it's kind and it just, it just gives to the other person whatever they want because, because if you don't, then they look at you and say, you don't love me. What a stupid idea. Not getting what you want has nothing to do with whether you are loved. In fact, sometimes people want things and because you love them, you can't give it to them. Like the cheesecake and ribeye, right? Right? So then how do we love? Honestly, if we are told to walk in love and love is not what the culture tells us, then how do we walk in love? Guess where the answer is found? In the Bible. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 starts the process of telling us what this love is that we're supposed to walk in. 1 John 4, 10. In this is love, not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. So love demonstrated. Love is God sending his son to earth so that his son could take our place and appease God's wrath, his right wrath for our sins, right? We've all messed up in different ways. And God put his wrath on his son so that I didn't have to pay it. And Jesus substituted himself and appeased God's wrath so that I didn't have to. That's love, Go back to John chapter 13. We're coming into a weekend that's referred to as Palm Sunday because in the story of Jesus, they put palms on the road, right, to to signify peace and glory for this king coming in. And then there's one week period called Passion Week, and, and then Jesus dies at the end of that. That passion week of Jesus' life is John chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20. Almost half of the book is the last week of his life on earth. And here's what happens. He shows up and he has time with his disciples. This is John 13, 34 and 35. And he says to them, a new commandment I give to you Love one another. That is not a new commandment. It's an old commandment. Starting at the Shema, back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, they're told, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Right? We know this. And it's love God in these ways. And then love the people around you as an extension of that. Jesus clarifies that even when asked, what is the greatest commandment given to people? Love God with all that you have. And love people those around you as you love yourself. So how could Jesus tell them that this is a new commandment to them if it's already a thousand-year-old commandment? Let's look at the context. The context is all the disciples showed up in a room to spend time with Jesus 
and their feet were dirty. Now, our feet get dirty, right? But their feet got dirty. They walked around in sandals on roads where all the animals pooped. That's dirty. And then they showed up in this room with stinky, dirty, gross feet. And they all said, I don't want to wash your feet. That's gross. So Jesus started washing their feet. And then he says, a new commandment I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. Two minutes ago, I was washing your feet. In the same way that I loved you, so you love those around you. That's what it means to walk in love. It means to recognize that God sacrificed his son to appease his wrath so that we didn't have to pay a penalty that was too great for us to bear. And Jesus says, I've served you. They all knew that he was the greatest and he served them so that he could show that he cared about them. He didn't just give them what they wanted. He served them and showed that it wasn't beneath him to better their lives. On a continual basis, we imitate God by walking in that kind of love to the people around us. But, so verse one starts out with therefore, which is a connecting word, connecting it to the previous passage and says, because of what's come already, here's the extension of thought. We now come to another connecting word called but, and it connects the previous passage in dissonance with what goes on forward. So the one is saying, because of this, we continue. The other is saying, because of this, there's a hard break. And now the connection is that it's not like this. So walk in love as imitators of God, right? We imitate him by walking in love, but... Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. That's a weird list. Because sexual morality and impurity seem to go very closely together. And then he tags on covetous. How does covetousness have anything to do with sexual morality and sexual impurity? What it really comes down to is this. We pretty well know what these two are. These two are wanting some sexual fulfillment with somebody who's not your spouse. That's what those two are, right? What is covetousness? Covetousness is the desire to have something that isn't yours, and it's somebody else's, and you just want it. So it actually ties in very closely. These two are in a sexual context. This one is in an everything else context. It actually goes even beyond that. And later on, Paul's going to write down in verse five, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure who has, or who is covetous, that is an idolater. So covetousness really says, hey, there's something out there that would make me happy but it's not Jesus. And if there's something out there that will make you happy and it's not the contentedness that you get from Christ, then you are saying that is more important than Jesus. 
And if you've chosen to put your faith in Christ to forgive your sins, put your faith in Christ to be saved, to have life with him, then there is nothing more important than him. And anytime we try to say something else would make us happy instead of him, we make an idol out of that thing. And we say, that is really my God. That is really the most important thing to me. What can that be? Anything at all. Anything at all in the sense that it could be golf. It could be food. Ribeyes and cheesecake. <laughs> it could be my job. It could be friendships. It could be my ability to look pious and important and like I love Jesus to the people around me. It could be anything. Anything that I say, that is where I'm going to find fulfillment. That is where I'm going to find happiness makes me an idolater because I'm, covet I'm coveting, covetous of that thing. And he says, make no mistake, that shouldn't even be named among you. Well, that makes no sense at all. I've already named it like six times. Paul wrote it. He named it. How can he say it can't even be named among us? What that really means is this. If somebody were to come in and list out all the characteristics of us as a group of people, you would not find in that list, here's greedy, covetous, sexually immoral people. It wouldn't be named. It wouldn't be listed. It wouldn't be part of an identifying marker on us. Obviously, nobody ever struggles in those areas, right? There's constant struggle there because we are still broken people. But it must not even be named among us. Somebody shouldn't even be able to say, yeah, I think that goes on there. They should say, no, those are people who instead of being covetous, sexually immoral or impure, those people walk in love, which is, which is put in contrast to immorality. Our culture, again, tells us that sexual connectivity comes out of attraction, and out of this attraction leads to sexual connection, and out of sexual connection leads a deep relationship, and that is wrong. Attraction is fine and well and good, and that is supposed to lead us to a place where we have connected, deep relationships with our spouse, and that intimacy that you have then and that love that you have for your spouse, that leads to sexual connection. You can't circumvent that. But our culture tells us that attraction leads to sexual connection. And this is saying that shouldn't even be named among us. Even further, he says this, let there be also no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. Out of our mouths should not come improper speaking. Totally long conversation to be had on what that exactly means that we don't really have time for in this moment. But from our mouths should not come improper speaking, which is usually things, uh, let's take swearing as an example. And I'm not going to stand here and list swear words. That would be uncomfortable. Did you know none of those words are bad? There is not one swear word that is bad. But they're all bad. And they're bad because we've put the meaning behind them that is derogatory toward a person. 
So you say swear words to devalue someone. All of the words come from natural, normal use that then got used in a way to devalue somebody and therefore became swear words. So the word itself is not wrong or bad, but the way that we use it devalues somebody making that word bad, which means that you could use a whole lot of other words that are just as bad as swear words because you're devaluing people in the way you're using them. None of that should come out of our mouth. Rather, what should come out of our mouth is thanksgiving. A thing that you can try once to let yourself see whether you're truly being in in a life of thankfulness once a week, pray with your family or by yourself or whatever and only thank God for things. Nothing else. Don't ask him for anything. Don't tell him how your day is going. Thank him for anything that comes to mind. And at first it seems really awkward and weird and hard. And then you start realizing that you could be thankful for a whole lot of stuff. People, rooms, houses, buildings, heat, food, cars, animals, friends, family, even though sometimes they drive you nuts. But be thankful because when we thank God for things, it decentralizes us. I can't be thankful for something unless I'm saying, oh, Brock, I'm so thankful that you're Brock, right? I'm not thanking myself. That's just weird. But when we thank God for things, it decentralizes us. We're thanking him for something that he's done, possibly for us, possibly for other people, but the thanks is still to him as the central feature. Instead, let there be thanksgiving, he says. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, impure, or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God, and that can be misunderstood. This does not mean anybody who sins in one of those ways, they're gone. What it means is if that's who you are, if that's the life you're living, you have no place in in the inheritance with Christ. Why? Because you're showing that you didn't really ever believe in him. Because if you really found your identity in Christ, what would you do? You would be an imitator of God in verse one. Because our identity is there, we imitate him, and in imitating him, we walk in love, which is in contrast to the immorality, the impurity, and the covetousness. And now if you're being immoral, impure, or covetous as a mode of life, you're really showing that you don't believe. That's actually a good thing. Because if we can recognize now that we don't actually believe, it can be changed. So if you find in your life that that's what you are, you're immoral, impure, covetous, or in other passages he says, and other things like this, then you can evaluate, do I actually have faith in Jesus or not? The inheritance that he speaks of is the inheritance out of Ephesians 1.11, 1.14, and 1.18, which is the inheritance of eternal life with him. And you don't have that. If you look unlike him unrepentantly, intentionally, and you don't care, then you're not part of that inheritance. 
Let no one deceive you. Don't be deceived with empty words, okay? Because of these things, the immorality, the impurity, the covetousness, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Again, there is wrath that God pours out on sin. Who are the sons of disobedience? Chapter two, verse one. He answers this for us. And you, all the people he's writing to, all the believers in Jesus, you were dead in the trespass and sins in, what, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So the wrath of God is poured out on the sons of disobedience who are whom? Those who are dead in their sins whose faith is not in Jesus, whose life has not been given to them from Christ, who are trying to do it on their own, who think they're strong enough, who think they're smart enough, who think they're capable enough that they can do it, but they can't. They're dead in their sins. And that means that we, as believers, need to show extra love to them because we're to walk in love so that they can see what that's like and recognize the change that Christ has made in us so that they too can have that. Therefore, he says, do not become partners with them for at one time you were darkness, but now you're light. So he's moved from this idea of love being antithetical opposite to immorality, impurity, and covetousness. And now he's gonna take that same idea and move it to the light. Who is the light? Says we were once darkness, but now we're light. What is that? That is a direct reference to Jesus. John chapter one, verses four and five, and again in verse nine says this. John one, four, in him was life, him being a person, and the life was the light of men. So this life that is Jesus is the light to people. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse nine, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and though the world was made by him, the world did not recognize him. This is Jesus. The light in the world that gives life to people. And we are now said to be ones of light, not ones of darkness. The darkness is that aspect to which people hide. Part of what we're not part of is this, this life that is hiding who we really are to the people around us. We looked at it earlier Chapter four, verse 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak truth to one another. And that falsehood isn't just lies. That falsehood is a, a life of falseness, fakeness, hiddenness. And now we're told that we're people of light, not people of dark. For what goes on in the dark is not like Jesus. You ever heard the phrase, somebody was, they were robbed in broad daylight is the shocker that somebody was robbed? Probably because nobody ever gets robbed, right? The shocker is that it happened in broad daylight. Why is that the shocker? Because everybody can see you in the dark. 
in an alley where nobody could see what's going on and somebody gets robbed, nobody knows what that person looks like. They can't see them. But in broad daylight, everybody sees them. And we are to be people like that who are seen by those around us because Jesus is the light. Beyond that, then, beyond just Christ being the light, it says that this gives us then the fruit of light, which is really the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Starting with love. Walk in love as imitators of God. Matthew chapter 5 verses 14 through 16. This is is the Sermon on the Mount, three chapters of Jesus speaking out of Matthew chapter five. And he says this, you are the light of the world. You, the people who are following me, me being Jesus, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Our role is to be a light to the people around us. Why? Because Jesus is the light. Who even back in the Ephesians passage, it says that awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. He will illuminate you. And now we are the light of the world. What does a light do? It shows reality. We're to do that in a way that's loving and kind and helpful. But we show reality. Does that mean we go out to the unbelieving world around us and we say, hey, you're doing it different than us and you're wrong. They are doing it different and they are wrong. And that is absolutely not what we are supposed to do. Because what we are supposed to do is expect the unbelieving world to act like what? The unbelieving world. We are supposed to expect believers to act like what? Believers. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 to 11, Paul says this, I wrote to you in my letter, previous letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people. Right? Back to that whole walk in love as opposed to walking in sexual morality and impurity and covetousness. He wrote... I wrote to you, do not associate with the sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. Or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to get out of the world. But I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of that, if that's what his life is marked by. We show that reality. We show that that truth. Because Christ is the light. He illuminates our own hearts. He lets us see who we are. We can shine that light for other people in such a way as to help believers see Christ, in such a way as to help unbelievers see Christ, not see condemnation from us. Our job is not to judge. It's to help. Which sometimes looks a little bit like judging. Because you tell people, hey, you know what? Punching a small child in the face, that's bad. That's a joke. It really... We judge that action as bad, right? Everybody knows it is. So we don't not judge. We don't not care. But we love in the midst of it. 
you know what? You're looking unlike Jesus because you tell me you don't believe in him. So let me show you what Jesus looks like. Let me be your friend. Let me get to know you. Let's spend time together so you can see my true heart, what I actually care about. And how what I tell you what I care about in Jesus is actually what I care about in Jesus. And then it shows itself. You can see it in how I interact with you and with other people. Because we're to imitate God. And we imitate him because our identity is found in Christ. And our identity is found in Christ when we put our hope and our faith and our trust in him. And then we walk in love as opposed to walking in immorality and impurity and covetousness. We walk in the light as opposed to walking in the dark where we hide what we're doing, where we don't want others to see us, when we do things that we know we're going to sin, but when we live in such a way as we know that we're wrong and we just don't want anyone to know so they just think highly of us, really what that is is covetousness. We're wanting them to see us as good, so we're trying to grab hold of that, and that is not a mark of a believer. That is the mark of someone who does not and has not been transformed by Jesus. Imitate God as his beloved children and walk in love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to be here. Thank you, Lord, for, for your word. Thank you for the conviction that it brings to my own heart. Thank you for the love that you show us. Thank you for the grace that you've given us. Thank you for our friends who are here. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather and to know you. Thank you for warm rooms on cold days, for excessive or extra amounts of food. And thank you, Father, most for your son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.